to Cyberology, Dakota State University's podcast for sharing and discussing all things cyber and technology. I'm Jen Burris from the Marketing and Communications Department at DSU, and I'll be your host. Today, we'll be talking about how evolving technology has impacted the study of English. I'm excited to introduce our co-host for this episode, Brittany Shop-Owens. Brittany is a content writer in our Marketing and Communications Department, where she writes copy for the website, media paperwork like pamphlets, social media, and so much more. Brittany, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everybody. My name is Brittany Shop-Owens. Like Jen said, I'm the content writer for DSU. I actually am an alum of DSU as well. I graduated in 2017 with a Bachelor of Science in English for New Media. And prior to that, I was actually um, in English education for about three, three and a half years, but switched my major a semester away from graduating with that. And I've been here ever since. Came to DSU in 2013. I have a husband and a nine-month-old little boy. And so he's the joy of our lives right now. But yeah, that's about it. So. And our expert guest for today is Dr. Justin Blessinger. He is professor of English in the College of Arts and Sciences, and Justin teaches courses like Intro to Lit and Media Studies. He's also an award-winning published author and director of the DSU ADAPT Lab for Accessible Technology at Dakota State. Justin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you, Jen. Well, let's see. I came to DSU in 2003, and at the time, the job was called Professor of Computers and Writing. And it was just one of those first, I think, indicators that DSU was a little bit different. And I had grown up around technology, even though I grew up in northeastern Montana on a farm and ranch up there. My family was, I guess, early adopters of home computers and that sort of thing. And so I was pretty comfortable with computers. And a lot of my friends were in computer science when I went through my undergraduate years, too. And so it was really a, an attractive fit for mm-hmm. me to be able to come to some place that was happy about the alignment of those two different skill sets. I had a little bit of programming and a little bit of early HTML and that sort of thing, just you know, enough to get myself into trouble. But it was such a good fit then to come to someplace that didn't just act surprised about being able to do both of those things, mm-hmm. but really celebrated that. My wife, Christina, and our two kids live here in Madison with me, and they're both in middle school and high school. Okay. And do they have a love of English and or technology? Yeah, they're equally comfortable in both worlds, I'd say. And a little bit of the mechanical side, too. You mentioned the work that I do in the ADAPT lab. And there's some hardware and modifying wheelchairs and little electric cars for children before they're able to use a wheelchair with the Go Baby Go program, stuff like that. And so one of the things that probably growing up on a ranch really instilled in me was just a familiarity with the tools around me to be able to keep something going after it's broken a couple of times, Mm -hmm. you're too far to return things to the store or uh, even buy another easily when you're up there. We were 100 miles from a Walmart, I think. So when you're out in the big open area in Montana, you do have to figure out a way to get things done, absent professionals or experts around. So you end up sort of learning on the job a lot. And I think that that has served me well at a place like DSU, where, as I said, it's kind of celebrated, not just tolerated or looked at with a mixture of amusement and concern, perhaps. (laughs) that an English professor Mm -hmm. might have some other skill sets. But here, it's a place where everyone has always been encouraging along those lines. And so I've been able to do a lot of different things and develop some talents that I think I wouldn't otherwise have been able to. Okay. And so you mentioned your first course was entitled Computers... Yeah, uh, Professor of Computers and Writing. That was my first job title here. Those first couple of years, I was teaching composition and a class called Advanced Writing at the time, which was what eventually became what we call media studies now. Okay. And so even though it sounds like it was mostly about writing, writing's a tool. You know, when we look at the big technologies that have really changed the world, the printing press is one that makes everybody shortlist, and of course the internet. And both of those are publishing technologies. You know, we often talk about the code behind them, the advent of HTML and 
how important that was because really then we start to see what we call the World Wide Web. It becomes recognizable. But the bulletin board systems were before that, which is, again, a, a sort of metaphor for publishing that, well, two of the world's most significant technologies and writing itself, of course, would be among the technologies that have to do with you know communication and publishing. So English has long had a relationship with what we might call high tech. You know, when the book first showed up, separating the manuscripts, uh, scrolls and chopping them up and putting it into something that we would recognize now as a book, that was a huge change. So writing itself, literacy, the movement towards the book, and becoming a culture, uh, certainly in Western civilization, where we celebrate the book, it became a metaphor for all things. You know, you see in Christian iconology, Mary starts to become a woman of the word. You know, her earliest depictions are she's holding baby Jesus. You know, she's the mother of Jesus. But then later on, you see Mary holding books, you know, carrying that metaphor of, of Jesus being the word made flesh into something that the culture really celebrates, which is the written word and the kind of access and privilege that education affords us. So in a sense, the icon of the book really starts to penetrate all culture, all Western culture at that point. So in looking at the association with high technology. How has that evolved then? You start with printing presses and things like that. And how would you say that television and other forms of media have been a part of that? Well, there's a sense in which our progress has been, I suppose, fits and starts. And I think that's really how all what we might call progress moves. It's never a smooth curve, right? There's always a sudden move when we encounter a new technology. And so television works a bit like that. You know, there was a lot of ink spent decrying the damage that television was doing to us intellectually. And I don't want to say that that was all without merit. We were moving as a culture away from the written word and moving towards the spoken word. And you don't go through something like that as a culture without something being given up. You might celebrate what we gained along the way, but that's a major change. But there too, of course, the English for New Media program is one that starts to say that a text is more than the printed word. So we start to use the word text to describe things like music, like a computer game. You read the language of advertising when you consider it all at once. So when you look at the opus or the collection of some massive amount of work, movies are text in our world now. Everything can be read and I suppose decoded in that sense. But as I said, it was kind of fits and starts. So early in the 20th century, college professors were bemoaning the state of writing. And so they asked English professors to help fix this because what was happening is they were assigning usually papers at the time for students to write. Not English professors, everyone else was too. And they went to the English faculty and said, what can we do to remediate the quality of writing that we're seeing in our incoming freshmen especially. And that's when Comp 1 was born. You know, So your composition class that just about everybody's taken uh, when they come to college, Comp 1, Comp 2, you know, it's kind of the bread and butter of an English program in terms of the bulk of the classes that we teach. It was certainly the bulk of the classes that I taught when I first came here to DSU. But it was intended to sort of fix a problem that the rest of the faculty were expressing, and that was they weren't seeing as high a quality as they wanted in response to the essays they were assigning. And where are we now? It's probably an extremely rare non-English professor who's assigning essays as the output, as the project, as the great measure of what it is that you know as a student, what sorts of sources you know how to use, all the things they still want, that critical thinking, they want demonstrated use of expert sources. But a lot of times these days it takes the form of a video or it might take the form of a um, an interactive program. It might take the form of a song here at DSU. There's a lot of different outputs now. And so, you know, the writing side of the academic life, certainly for an undergraduate, 
is really different, I think, than it was 100 years ago when composition was really born and really different than 200 years ago when it was assumed that you had that skill set and that it was sort of beneath the university to remediate uh, anything like that. Like, of course you knew how to do that. I mean, General Beadle, who's one of the founders of our um, university, had to spend a year before being fully admitted to college. Uh, so at 18, he did a year of remediation because his Greek was so bad. So the assumption was that if you went to college, you had Latin, you had Greek, maybe you had some French, because if you're going to be a world traveler, that was sort of an expectation of the time. Um, but a couple of different languages, and certainly Greek and, and Latin, not necessarily you could speak them fluently, but you could translate them. And so since Beetle was from a rural place... He knew going to college was going to be an upward climb for him because he, he had some Latin, but he didn't have the Greek. And so he had to spend a year and he did just fine. He knew that this was something he needed to remediate in. But that was before they even thought about remediating writing. Um, that's how much of an expectation being a good writer was for the culture, that it didn't even occur to anybody that you would take a class in that as a college student. I mean, now we have the occasional class in reading, you know, I mean, it, that's, that's how much things have changed. So that expectation that you should already have those skills. Right. That expectation was that not only could you write very well, but you also had Latin, Greek, probably French, you know, those kinds of things, maybe a little Russian, you know. Um, those were just expectations for coming to college. I have a copy of an exam that was given to incoming freshmen here at DSU, wasn't DSU at the time, Eastern State Normal School, I think the letterhead says. And uh, it was a handwritten exam, and it was on uh, Lake Chautauqua Hotel letterhead. So I would guess that the faculty member who was um, proctoring this exam was staying out at the famous uh, hotel out on Lake Madison and uh, made copies of his exam by hand and then distributed them when they had freshmen coming to test in to college to see if they were ready. And I think it would be a rare freshman indeed who could pass that, in part because the language of what we talk about when we talk about language has changed. We have different names for certain grammatical phenomena these days. Um, I still remember when a, a professor of, of Hebrew, I took a class in Hebrew when I was an undergraduate because it sounded interesting, right? <laughs> so he was Princeton trained and I was just thrilled to be able to take anything that he was offering. And so when he offered that, I thought, well, that'd be really neat to know this ancient, ancient language. And uh, I remember a day when he kept talking about the preterite tense and I was just dumbfounded. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I, I don't know if it was I who was brave enough to ask finally, but someone finally asked, what is the preterite? And oh my goodness, the disgust on his face, because there were several English majors like me in the room. And he's like, how could you possibly not know what the preterite was? And I was deeply ashamed at that point. I'm like, wow, this is really elementary and I don't know what it is. And um, so by way of explanation, he said, it's, it's what you use when you want to talk about the past. It's the tense. And I said, the past tense. Yes. Oh, well, goodness sake, why can't we just call it the past tense, right? As grammar books have changed, some mm -hmm. of the vocabulary that they use have changed. So some of this exam's difficulty lies in that, but some of it just lies in the expectation that, of course, you have a pretty solid understanding of how grammar works. And part of that is, if you've studied any foreign languages, of course you have a better understanding. That's what was happening when I took that Hebrew class. Uh, if you didn't understand English grammar before taking a foreign <laughs> language, you have a much better understanding of English grammar after taking a foreign language because you've got to answer all these questions like how do they use the definite article or the indefinite article? And those are fancy words for the indefinite article is A. 
the letter A, uh, mm -hmm. and the definite article is the, T-H-E, right? So these aren't complicated words. We all know how to use them. When we have something specific in mind, we say the pencil. When we have something non-specific, I don't care which pencil, give me a pencil. So it's called the indefinite article. So these are names for things that you don't have a need for the vocabulary until you study, especially a foreign language, but you study your own language as such. That'll do it too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's one of those incoming expectations. They wouldn't have thought of uh, offering really a class on that. It was expected you knew how to do that if you were ready for college. So it was a threshold kind of a skill. And uh, that has changed. Now, I, I suppose we're in a place where really it's more about the device and the use of the device. So the technology that gets us to the publishing world, you know, of the of the internet, but the the keyboard that goes along with it and so on. If you didn't know how to use a keyboard, if you didn't know how to use on its basic level a computer, not, you know, Macintosh versus PC or those kinds of things, but if you just if this was new to you, I think you would struggle a great deal to prosper in modern higher education. Because think of the remediation you would need to do just to learn to use a keyboard and all of the little tricks that we know uh, without thinking when we're scrolling, when we're swiping, when we're mm -hmm. um, double clicking. Um, there's a lot of things that you know intuitively from having used these technologies for a very long time. And we don't remediate that. We don't, uh, and we, and everyone would sort of think, well, why would we, right? And and that's how English grammar or some of the foreign languages were just assumed that if you were ready for this level of study, that of course you had those kinds of skills. So at that point, we started to see English professors become a little more specialists. We were always sort of generalists before that. Um, and by that, I mean, you started to see a certain group of professors who studied and trained to become compositionists. They were teaching composition, studying rhetoric and, and studying uh, writing. And uh, they became sort of specialists in that area. And meanwhile, all of modern education started to move towards, I think, maybe a disparaging of the generalist, saying that if you really wanted to be respected, you had to sort of become extremely esoteric. You had to become an extreme specialist in your field. You know, as we got the flood of new students that happened in the wake of World War II, you know, we saw all these people on the GI Bill, for example, who were coming in. Some of my, my most uh, beloved professors when I was an undergrad had gotten their degrees thanks to that amazing opportunity that was the GI Bill. You know, there were no student loans yet, so the GI Bill was transformative. But that plus student loans then uh, some years later kind of terraformed the modern university where you had so many more people now seeking a college degree than you ever did before. And that change, I think, is what really drove people to become specialists, absolute specialists. And there's something lost when you do that. Right? There's, there's a lot to be said for becoming a specialist. But, you know, you often lose where your specialization fits in the, in the big picture. So I think that English is one of those fields that while we have our specialists, to be sure, there's still an area that we simply call a generalist. And it's just somebody who can teach American literature, British literature, can teach composition. And, and that's sort of how most of the faculty at DSU have been. It's a small enough university that all of us at some point or another are going to teach something that's maybe a little bit outside of what we focused most on in our dissertation process or something like that. So while I don't teach American Lit here, uh, it shows up in my Intro to Lit class all the time. I teach one of the, the world literature classes, but not the other that's a little more modern world lit. So in order for there to be any conversation between ancient world literature and modern, I need to know what the other faculty member is doing 
hearing. Heck, maybe we should switch every once in a while. So those of us at DSU end up treasuring our specializations, but we're not allowed to be true specialists all the time because the the reality of what's needed here is that generalist kinds of thing. And I think that's actually been a really good thing for the kinds of people who thrive at uh, at DSU, especially in our, in our English program, where we're part doing gen ed kinds of things like composition. And we're also trying to um, bring talented students into the English New Media program and help them find a place in the world of modern uh, publishing. It's not a publishing degree per se, but because of the way new media works, and we're always looking at how media is changing, and that means thinking about how we get information to people. And, you know, obviously that's a question of publishing a lot of times, even this podcast that we're making, right? We're, we're thinking both about the editing process and how do we move this thing online? Where do we market it? All of these are questions uh, for the modern English new media specialist. Okay. And Brittany, could you speak a little bit about your experience in the English? Yeah, so um, I absolutely love the English for New Media program. When I did switch and through all my classes, the aspect that I loved the most was the analyzation of everything. It wasn't just, you know, hey, here's a story. What do you think of it? It was a literal in-depth analysis of the text itself. And it was like, well, what do you think he's actually meaning when he says this or she says this? And so I find that a really unique perspective of the English for New Media program. And I'm just kind of curious, how do you teach your students in your classes to kind of have that perspective or to kind of um, be aware of that perspective while they're reading? I, I love what you brought up there, and, and in part because it reminds us that the English New Media degree uh, at DSU, the way we do it, is still a very lit-heavy major. So we didn't give that up when we started talking about what does English look like for the 21st century. It's still an English degree, and we weren't willing to let go of what makes so many of us truly fall in love with this field, which is the written word, right? the, the actual text in the original sense, the words on the page. I don't think you'd be drawn to this field if that wasn't already something that you'd developed, but we have certainly broadened our definition of, as I said before, text, right, of what we're thinking about when we do analysis. So we can analyze James Joyce and, and take a look at, you know, Dubliners, for example. Just just did this this semester in my Irish Lit class. Read most of, of Dubliners and each story, you know, standing alone is wonderfully fun to analyze. And then, of course, there's that question once you've finished the whole work, how do they interact with each other? And that's everything that an English major traditionally would do. But then we might take a look at some of the video interpretations that um, we might take a look at if somebody ever dared try and make a computer game version of this. Just <laughs> as an example, I sincerely doubt somebody. Well, somebody has surely tried it. I don't know how successful uh, that would be. But there's a lot of what we call transmedia worlds now, which are worlds that have been created usually because of something that started in the world of original text, of text on a page. But you think about something like the the world of the Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth, right? That has a computer game iteration, multiple computer game iterations, movie iterations. Probably there's a series out there or something like that. <laughs> Certainly some animated uh, attempts at it. Um, and all manner of different ways in which media works, they're all feeding from the essential world created. And so when we talk about analysis, uh, we just have more grist for the mill than we ever did. And so our, our world of what we can analyze has gotten bigger. Mm -hmm. So one of the skills that we're always seeing employers are looking for, one of the things that the modern university actually seems to struggle a bit with 
assessing for measuring how good students are at it. Um, they're, they're always talking about critical thinking. You, you know, everybody heard this way back to middle school and so on. You know, how do we assign things that really challenge critical thinking and how do we measure successful critical thinking? And everyone in English has always sort of been baffled by the question. Everything we do is about critical thinking. That's what's fun about the study of English, uh, the analysis. They're looking for patterns and looking to see where connections can be made between not just you know, one text or another by Joyce, but then between those texts and non-printed mm -hmm. texts, uh, songs and um, pamphlets. And I mean, all of those things touch on that central um, habit. That's, it's so human. We're always looking for the pattern. We're always looking for the signal in the noise. You know, humans wouldn't have lived very long as a species if we weren't able to say, boy, you know, there's that growly sound that always comes before a tiger grabs somebody out of the cave here. You know, if we, because we can notice those patterns and obviously more sophisticated ones than that, because we can notice those patterns and then start to develop our own, that's the birth of communication, of language, eventually of writing. It's all pattern making. And so, um, you know, in English is part of... Um, I guess, a, a pattern recognition and critical thinking pattern that goes all the way back to the dawn of the human um, as a member of a group, you know, from, from the very beginning of humans starting to behave cooperatively, wanting to share uh, tools and share protection and so on, you know, the, the basic, I suppose, elements of what we might call a tribe today. That's how far back what we call the English major really, really would be, or at least the things that we study in the English major, all of those communication skills and writing and message sending and message receiving. Um, because, gosh, think about smoke signals, think about beating on a drum to communicate over long distances. These are all part of how we communicate, and it's necessary for us to be able to do that pattern recognition, encoding and decoding, in order for us to to have thrived as a, as a species. So you're never going to see the English major go away utterly. You know, there'll be times when it's more popular and less popular. Um, but it always has a form, and, and while it, it might go through name changes, there might be more technical skills added to you know, the modern English major um, than, than many people expect to see, but it's not something that can ever disappear from uh, the modern university. So with that, do you think that, you know, there's physical copies of books and then there's Kindles and all those kind of things. So I guess my question is, what do you think's going to happen? Are, are those physical copies of books going to continue to be out there and, you know, publishing houses and all that, or is it going to go away at some point entirely and go online? There was a lot of concern about this when we really started to see eBooks emerge. There was a lot of concern about, well, what about the classic book? And most of that was overblown. You know, I, I listened to someone speak recently about how everything's going digital, including, of course, books. And this person was speaking about textbooks. And I agree that the majority of textbooks are likely to go towards the digital, in part because searchability. You know, a textbook isn't something you read cover to cover. You know, a textbook is something you access selectively. You might have read a good chunk of it by the time the semester is over, but you probably didn't read it in order. And you paid very special attention to specific things. When it came time to study for that exam, you probably used the control F or the search uh, tool and tried to find keywords and, and looked for those keywords. 
That's, of course, just being expeditious with your time. That's just being strategic about how you're, you're, you're going to study. So we will continue to see certain types of information move towards the digital. I am so grateful uh, that some people took the time to digitize some of the old sources uh, that I access today. So, for example, I mentioned General Beadle earlier and the research that I've done on him. And it's so fantastic to be able to find his autobiography digitized. Because while I've read it, um, I often think to myself, oh gosh, where was the section where he was talking about his first arrival in Dakota Territory? I know it's at the beginning somewhere, but I just couldn't find it. Well, you know, with the digital text, it makes it effortless to access that information really quickly. So yes, we will see especially certain types of books maybe move entirely into the realm of the ebook. And nobody's going to be really grieved by that, right? Um, it's a rare person for who, who, who holds their uh, tattered copy of a textbook uh, as a precious artifact, right? But your your copy of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or, or your copy of um, T.S. Eliot's Collected Poetry, right? That's something that is well-worn and you've dog-eared certain pages and you just simply wouldn't trade that for the digital, even though sometimes it's nice to find the digital copy use the digital copy because you're looking for something. So I don't see the panic that arrived uh, early on uh, as having been justified. But I do think we're going to see, you know, continued change. We will see that probably there will always be um, a certain market for print, but it'll probably remain more for books that we uh, enjoy reading rather than have been assigned to read probably. Um, And it'll be more for the classics especially um, and let's not deny there are those who use books as decoration. You know, they're proud <laughs> to have read that book. They want others to see that book. So they put it in a prominent place in their home. I mean, there's a certain status that's, that's always been associated with the book. I mentioned before, you know, um, painting Mary with a, a book in her lap. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a prestige thing, uh, too, uh, even though they really did read the book. Nobody's, you know, faking this here, but it was, it was a, a valuable thing. Um, However, I think the novel itself is changing. And, and here at, at DSU, um, Professor Joseph Bottom recently published uh, a really important work, The Decline of the Novel. And in it, he makes the argument that as you've seen the collapse of what he calls mainline Protestantism in the United States, so there were like five denominations that 50 years ago, something like 80% of all Protestants belonged to one of these five. And now it's something like 22%. It is a really tiny percent of those. Now, some of them switched denominations to more evangelical or to Roman uh, Catholic or something like that, but a lot of them just left the church entirely. And so the, the mainline Protestant uh, group in America has been really, really changed and uh, decreased in terms of its influence. And uh, Dr. Bottom makes the argument that the novel as we know it had a lot to do with Protestantism, um, especially with Protestants, Protestantism's focus on the individual and being an individual and being able to sort of think for yourself, do for yourself, which you know doesn't work quite as well within hierarchical systems like the Roman Catholic Church. And so uh, he makes that argument that that it had a lot to do with Protestantism, and therefore, when you see Protestantism collapse, you're going to see the art that Protestants championed also collapsing. So, um, yeah, there's another conversation for you to have. You guys need to do a a, a chat with uh, Dr. Bottom because uh, um, he's certainly seen how that technology, the novel itself, um, has really changed. He's not saying that we don't write novels anymore. He's saying we don't 
use the novel as the way to communicate the biggest ideas of our culture anymore. We used to use it that way, and we don't uh, anymore. So it's a fascinating argument, um, and really a worthwhile read if you can get a copy. Going back to the ebooks, did that change the publishing scope somewhat? Because there seems to be a lot more self-publishing going on, and is that kind of changed? Yeah. The- yep. I mean, and Brittany may be able to speak to this better than than I can, but um, you know, we certainly offer classes that have an eye on both types of publication. So our our publishing for new media class, in particular. Um, it looks at publishing in the print world, and it looks at publishing in digital environments. And so it, um, as one of its projects, creates the, um, the Nutrix uh, DSU Literary Magazine. And uh, I've always really enjoyed getting that in both forms. I like to have the, the traditional paper form, but the digital form allows us to celebrate you know, full color or 3D images uh, or interactive images that have been created by our art students and so on. So we can feature things that you can't with the traditional book. So uh, we want our students to to have that skill set that can um, flex in either direction, right? They can work with the classic because, you know, certainly uh, in in promoting DSU, right, we're still using a lot of paper. Uh, We're still publishing a lot of documents and so on, but it isn't all we do. And to do it in only that way would extremely uh, limit your audience, right? And so that's the the sort of ideal for our graduates is to be able to be very functional with whatever platform comes along. Mm-hmm. You know, this is going to continue to change, um, and and we need to be right there alongside it, and in many ways to help shape it, not just to follow it where it leads, but to 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 tame it. So, kind of a flexibility in platform use right like um journalists using twitter for sources and to get the word out on breaking news things like that great examples yeah absolutely and you know one of the other things that the english major would do um we have a a class um on on text analysis and on data analysis uh that has a text component so um you know you mentioned twitter that's an absolute must for our students to be able to say to themselves, well, I'd like to take every post by this organization or every Twitter post by this individual, and then I'd like to run some analytics on it and see what patterns emerge. What's so cool about text analysis is a lot of times we have no idea what we're about to find. When you start running a text analysis uh, program on a a body or a corpus of, of work, you sometimes have a question in mind about what you're going to find or an expectation, but you rarely have an inkling of what you're really going to find. And so there's all kinds of sort of surprises that come along when you start running um, an analysis of text. Uh, a recent graduate of ours did an analysis of Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, that's one of those things I mentioned, uh, professors becoming increasingly, increasingly specialized. And, you know, one of the first areas that became over-specialized was the, the Shakespeare uh, mm-hmm. arena to the point where it was, it, it felt impossible to say anything new about Shakespeare, <laughs> you know, 400 years uh, of popularity. A lot has been said. Um, and then once you had all these newly minted PhDs, a lot more was said. But when text analysis came along, uh, you were able to plug in everything that he'd ever written and be surprised by some of the patterns. So one of our students plugged in Romeo and Juliet and took away all the stage directions, the asides, and you know the 
specific direction of who's speaking. So Romeo colon, Juliet colon, right? All of that was stripped away, left with only the spoken words. And she found that Romeo spoke about Romeo more often than he did Juliet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this should shock no one who has ever been or been around a 16-year-old boy. But, you know, that sort of narcissism is such a delight to find in Shakespeare, who 400 years ago has a teen boy who actually talks about himself a lot. And that alone was a revelation. And it's not something I've ever heard any scholar of Shakespeare observe because you don't really notice it while you're reading it. But text analysis made it very apparent that Romeo likes to talk about Romeo. Juliet actually likes to talk about Juliet too, but uh, not to the degree <laughs> that Romeo likes his the sound of his own name. That's funny. So you're you're talking a little bit about text analysis, and earlier we mentioned kind of, you know, it takes form of many different shapes, like scripts and even movies and all that stuff. So I remember in your media studies class, um, going in, I didn't really know what it was about, and you just kind of took it, and you, it was an analysis of movies, basically, but compared to text as well. And um, I remember watching Amelie, and you said something. I cannot remember what. It's been a long time. (laughs) Um, You said something specifically about how um, it's an outside perspective, but they're going in through, like, a window. And it's, like, it's supposed to signify the – I can't remember exactly what it was. No, there's a boxing metaphor that shows up. Um, Oh, it's such a neat piece to look at because throughout the film – Characters are being boxed. They're being boxed in with uh, with visuals. So you know, when we meet the parents at the very beginning of the film, um, there's columns alongside and a sort of arch above each of them. There's a shot that gets repeated many times where the camera is sort of deep inside a hole and someone's looking in through the chink in the floor, the tile at the bottom of a, of a bathroom wall. A tile has come out and someone's looking in there. It's underneath the refrigerator and someone has had to jack up the refrigerator and is looking in. And each time it places their face, you know, visually in a box. And it's so extensive that the art designers who put the, the DVD box collection together created a box that slides into a, another decorative box. And there's holes cut in the exterior of the box to show just Amelie's face peeking out uh, from her bedroom. And then on the opposite, it's her face peeking out from while she's in the park. But the, the box itself is playing that same game, extending that same metaphor. So I do really enjoy media studies because it's a stealthy way of getting students to read some pretty deep texts, but then it gives them the skills to take those texts. So we, you know, we start with uh, the Apology, um, uh, Plato, and um, we we try to apply that immediately to some of the texts that were, that were the visual texts that we're looking at. Uh, we read Ursula K. Le Guin, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, uh, in which she says, uh, that it's treasonous of the artist to ref- to refuse to admit the banality of evil, the terrible boredom of pain. She's criticizing the habit that we have of celebrating something as a little more intellectual when it's really dark. And like, oh, it's the seedy under- underbelly of the thing, so this must be intellectually interesting. And she says we've, we've uh, betrayed our ability to tell a happy story. And then we take a look at the film Amelie, uh, in which it's a happy story. I mean... She faces problems, 
in many ways, Amelie is her own problem, right? If you, if you know the film, Amelie needs to self-actualize and she keeps sort of hobbling herself and denying herself full access to the joy of life. But it's a joyous movie and it's about getting access to, full access to joy in your life. And so I challenge my students with Ursula K. Le Guin's short story in which she's saying, we have a nasty habit of... Uh, celebrating anything that's dark as somehow more intellectual than things that are light. If it's light and happy, well, that might be for kids, you know. And if it's dark and brooding, well, then it's fodder for, you know, our, our serious intellectual questions and so on. And I'm not saying nothing dark is interesting. Of course, there's some great pieces out there that ultimately are pretty dark, um, you know, I used to use The Godfather in that class a lot. And, you know, it's a great example. It has a fair amount of darkness in the film. And it's extremely intellectually interesting. But there are some modern texts, films and, and otherwise, that really do celebrate joy. I think Le Guin is right. We have a habit of discounting happiness as somehow trivial mm -hmm. or less worthy of our intellectual attention. But um, it is a, a very good class in part because... Uh, students are usually willing to go along on the more difficult reading because each time they're rewarded out the other end with an application to something that you know, might be a computer game, it might be a film. I, in that class, we use several films, so a lot of times it's a film in that one or a piece of a TV series. We now do Sherlock, uh, the BBC Sherlock in that one, um, and Firefly and and that sort of thing too because there's been a lot of critical material produced in the last you know 20 years on on those kinds of things too so it's a it's a great fun class and a great example of the kind of thing that really feeds the english new media major at dsu i think one thing i took away specifically for that from that class is i can now not watch a movie without thinking about it <laughs> and analyzing it and being like okay or like elliot my husband and i will be watching something on netflix and i'll be like oh did you realize they're doing this because of this <laughs> and then at the end of the episode i'm right and so it, it's it's a great class and I, I really really enjoyed it and you can't turn it off no that's not always a good thing right I mean, <laughs> right when you actually want to enjoy it switch it off <laughs> but once you get good at pattern recognition you're always analyzing. You know, it's sort of like I do a lot of proofreading for the composition classes that I teach. And it's a curse and a blessing because, of course, every every sign you run across, every menu that you pick yep. up, you know, it's always teasing you with way. someone's inability to use apostrophes or something like that, right? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and um, why is it important to develop these pattern recognizing abilities? Well, pattern recognition works in so many different ways. You know, um, I work on my own cars mostly, and um, that that comes from my time in Montana and the remoteness of, of where we lived. But there was also just an element of personal worth. You weren't you weren't you weren't much of a man if you couldn't fix your own car. You know, you might not be the best one for it. Maybe at some point you're like, you know what? I got enough money. I'm going to pay somebody else to do this job. It's a nasty job. I don't want to do it. But you need to know how. Right? That was just sort of an expectation. And um, so, you know, just by way of example, recently the our primary car um, started making a terrible sound. You know, it was clear something very serious was wrong with it. 
And the process by which you diagnose that kind of thing is pattern recognition. You know, you start to say, okay, it has this interval and it has this sort of percussive sound to it. And uh, it only emanates from this one area of the engine. And, uh, you know, you break out what we lovingly call the, the redneck stethoscope, which is really just a piece of hose that you put to your ear. And you can isolate exactly where, uh, well, down to a few inches in the engine it's coming from and... Son of a gun, it was coming from under the timing cover, which means that it was a timing chain issue or one of the guides for it. And that meant open heart surgery on the engine. And I'm like, oh, why can't it ever be something easy? But that's pattern recognition, you know, trying to diagnose what's wrong with a computer program, you know, removing whole chunks of the te of, of the code at a time and and running those components to make sure they function properly. You know, you're narrowing the field because you're, able to recognize a pattern. Um, so there is really no such thing as a, a major that doesn't in some way, you know, really make probably significant use of pattern recognition. It just so happens that, you know, with English, every word we speak, every word we write is part of the pattern that we study. <laughs> so there is nothing that's really off limits. You know, we can study the rhetoric of computer programmers. We can study the use of language by historians. You know, it everything is grist for the mill for the English major. And so for that reason, there's no possible way to be exhausted to, to or to reach the end of what we what we study. There's always new material uh, and there's always something fun and exhilarating to be studied. So I think that that's one of the things that when students recognize that, that uh, it, it can feel overwhelming, of course, you know, uh, and maybe even a little sad. There's no way to master it all in any field, but especially in our field where, you know, there's thousands years of, of, uh, of the printed word. And um, that's just the beginning because in the last, you know, 20 years alone, we've like tripled the amount of, of printed material, probably a great deal more than that, but we've exponentially increased in the amount of printed uh, text to be read. The internet's full of it. So yeah, there's no end uh, to the rabbit trails that, that you get on. There's always new material. So in my study of, of General Beetle, I just found out that University of Michigan has all the minutes from the Literary Society of which he was a member and ultimately was president. Well, he was probably a member of the Underground Railroad. He has this sort of oblique reference to a student, he says, who was a writer for the Underground Railroad, was recruited by abolitionists while he was an undergraduate, and uh, ultimately, you know, brought on to deliver messages up and down the Underground Railroad. And he knows the location of everything in his story. He knows which houses they stopped at. He knows uh, which abolitionists were involved and, and what they were charged with when they got caught by authorities. I mean, he knows so much that he's clearly sort of winking at his own audience saying, okay, it was me, but I can't say that because it was illegal at the time. You know, to help a, a slave escape was illegal, sadly enough, even in the North, um, it, it was made illegal. So, uh, you know, slavery wasn't allowed in the North. It, was, it had been banned by then in, in the North, but you couldn't help slaves escape. It was the most peculiar thing. But this literary society, I've really started to think was a cover at least during that time, it was a cover for abolitionist activities because he mentions having given a speech that was um, 
blaming the, the Mexican-American War for having increased the number of slaves. And so in it, that it wasn't, you know, noble in, in that sense. Certainly the, the, the cause of it may have been, but the, the outcome was that there were, there were more slaves after the war. So that's what caused the abolitionists to start recruiting him is this speech that he gave for a literary society. And so the fact that those archives exist, I just... I'm now very eager to go out to uh, Michigan and get access to their archives and just spend some time nosing around in the minutes of a student secretary for a student organization from 1857 to 1861. I I have no idea what it is. Maybe it's going to be terribly disappointing and it's, it's going to be very brief. But at the time, a lot of secretaries took copious notes. It's possible that Beatles' speech is part of that record, you know, that somebody actually asked him for his copy of the speech and put it into the record. You know, the old clubs used to do meticulous record keeping. So if we get lucky, maybe we find out a great deal more about a, you know, a secret society using an English club as its cover for helping slaves get across to Canada because they're so close there at University of Michigan and Ann Arbor. They're really, really, if you made it that far as a slave... You could just about taste your freedom at that point because you were getting really close because just from there to Detroit and then you're across the river and you're into Canada. So it must have been, a, well, exciting for the people who were helping is a, one way of saying it, but it was greatly dangerous for them too. But there, there's a great example. You know, uh, Beetle was uh, entered as, a, as an English major. That's when he went off to college. That's when he wanted to, to study first. And uh, there he is helping with the Underground Railroad as part of really what he's doing. Why? Well, because the study of literature reminds us of our own humanity. Of course, you would be provoked to think more seriously about what freedom means. Does that mean that every English major made the right decision? No, certainly not. But it doesn't surprise me that he did. It doesn't surprise me that some time with great works, uh, he was also raised um, in a in a Quaker uh, church. So certainly that they were famous for their abolitionist activities. So that had to have had a major effect on him too. But it doesn't surprise me that an English major at that time would have been thinking seriously about the big questions of the day, what it means to be free. You know, you mentioned um, how literature can resonate with you. And I remember many times, um, not just in college, but in high school, reading a book, or I was an avid reader. I'm too busy now to read. I try to make time. But anyway, that's besides the point. And, um, you know, you mentioned this, just random pieces can resonate with you. So I'm kind of curious what pieces over the years have resonated with you personally? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, you need to give yourself uh, uh, permission to, to take a break uh, when you've got little ones at home. Oh, my goodness. I, I used to play a lot more computer games. And uh, then, of course, along came children. And, you know, they tend to get into trouble if they're not being supervised. So yes. you can't put on headphones oh, and yeah. tune out. It's yeah. not okay. Mine just started so, crawling. So. <laughs> so you have some things that are keeping you pretty busy. But I know you'll return to it when when the... The time you know permits you again, especially right. because you'll be, and I'm sure you already are, are reading to your little one. But pretty soon you'll be reading more sophisticated texts mm-hmm. together, right? Oh goodness, you know there's been so many that have spoken to me, but I I think one of the first that I felt was really transformative was um, Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio, which isn't read nearly as much today, but in its time was just hugely important. Uh, and Sherwood Anderson kind of became a, a sort of I don't know, kingmaker sounds dismissive in some way, but 
He helped many other authors find success. And in particular, he was a great help to Ernest Hemingway. You know, so he was much younger. Hemingway was much younger than Sherwood Anderson. But Anderson was writing about these stories that are taking place in Winesburg, Ohio. And it's this small town uh, in Ohio. And the main character is a sort of newspaper man who's thinking about going off to uh, college and to the big city and so on. And he's really sort of encountering something that was really significant for America at the turn of the last century, as so many people were moving away from the rural places and moving towards those urban centers. I remember I, I was an FFA in, in high school. A lot of people don't know that about me, but, uh, you know, the future farmers of America. And uh, I, I owe them so much. It was great because uh, I would have probably not traveled nearly as much uh, if I hadn't been. So I got to see Kansas City because I was in FFA and, and so on. But um, in FFA, I remember some startling statistics about how demographically the United States had changed. Something close to 90% of Americans were involved in agriculture in some way at uh, the turn of the last century in the 1900s. Um, that, so involved, right? Selling grain counted, you know, running a mill uh, counted, but in some way involved with the business of agriculture. And that by the turn to the next century, so by the year 2000, it was fewer than 8%, fewer than 7%, and it's far fewer even today still. So Anderson's story about this young man who's got some great intellectual gifts, who's seeing his own little town through the lens of somebody who reads and thinks... And he's telling the stories of the people of Winesburg, Ohio, and they're all, he uses the word grotesque, which doesn't mean in his usage the, the way we mean it today, but uh, it does mean we're all transformed and sometimes harmed by the, the world around us, that we're all, maybe scarred is a good word for it. And so he uses that word again and again and again to describe how people are made grotesque by the pain in their life. And each story is so tender. There's a story of a teacher, and it's called Hands. And the school teacher just loves his job. He loves the little ones. He loves encouraging them. He's a wonderful teacher. And his hands are sort of always flying about when he's talking. And he loves to ruffle the hair of this boy while talking to them. He loves to pat this child on the back while encouraging them. And so the hands are always used, and they're almost like birds flying. And then there's an accusation made against him because of his fondness for, for children and for teaching children. And a, um, a, a dad beats him up. And from then on, the hands are tied against his chest, and he's, he's wounded forever. You know, and no doubt because of the accusation alone. Um, and, and how successful as a teacher can you ever be once an accusation like that has been made, right? Um, and so it it's such a tender telling of the story because you feel the ache that this person's passion for teaching how good he really was and um, how expressive he was. And all of that is quashed by this one bad you know, day where there's an accusation made, there's no proof to it, but, you know, he's, he's harmed irreparably uh, by it. And uh, there's a, a moment in, in um, it's called an adventure, in which a woman runs out in the rain, stark naked in the middle of this tiny little town, because it's just so beautiful, the rain and the dark and so on, and she can't stop herself, she just does it. And then, of course, somebody yells out the window and sees her and somebody makes fun of her and she's crushed. She's like, what am I doing? And she's, she's shrunk again and she 
you know, goes back into the house and locks all the doors and is so just deeply ashamed of this expression that, you know, my goodness, King David uh, danced naked, you know, according to one of the, one of the stories in uh, Samuel. And so, you know, being inspired to, to dance in the rain is a metaphor we use even today for how uh, moved we are by beauty in our, in our lives. And so, and yet to really do it, boy, that, <laughs> that's not something we're all actually willing to do. And she does, and she pays dearly for it. So I remember just sort of reading this catalog of grotesques, as, as Sherwood Anderson calls it, all of these people who are scarred by a combination, like usually love, but love that's it's gone awry in some way. I think it was really transformative for me. Here was somebody who seemed to understand thoughts that you've had maybe only in your secret self, and here's somebody telling you your own truths back to you which I think is what the greatest poetry and the greatest literature always does. It's not a truth that you can't fathom, that you'd never considered. It's something that you somehow in your secret self always knew to be true. And there it is expressed to you in words that you didn't have for it. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about writing is, you know, you can, it just it trans, you can translate to other people and you don't know how it's going to affect them or how they'll resonate with it. And I, I think that's why I'm so drawn to writing field and reading because, you know, you can escape in a book and then it might not be what, about what you're going through, but something in that first chapter or wherever it might be might hit you in a way that you're like, oh, maybe maybe this is how it is for me right now and I just got to accept that or something like that. Absolutely. So um, in talking about the different use of the word grotesque, how has our language kind of changed? And even in the technology sector where we've started using words in a different way, you know, you're going on your week weekend Netflix binge or items like that. That are just kind of you know part of um, well part of every English major I've ever known has been a sort of deep love for just words themselves, and in part that's because I don't know I don't I don't want to get too poetic here, but I love this time of year because of the lilacs, right? They're they're just they're we're just getting the the leaves on them right now, so we're not even that close yet. Uh, but once you see the leaves coming out, you know it's imminent. The those gorgeous fragrant blossoms that they only last a week, maybe a week and a half. But you go outside and you haven't even seen the blossoms yet, but you know somebody in the neighborhood's lilacs are starting to open up. It's that powerful and, and that fragrant. And I think it's a little bit like that. We recognize that words change. Um, that, you know, slang is, of course, a well-documented mechanism by which it happens, but technology has a lot to do with it as well. Because words change... They change a little more slowly than the blooms each spring, but because they do that, we kind of hold them in a in a in a in a different precious place. Those of us who study English, right? We love words just for being words, right? The fact that the Oxford English Dictionary exists is such a testament to that. You know, it's like twenty-two volumes if you uh, actually look at the printed form of it. Um, speaking of digitization, there's one that everybody is grateful for the digitization <laughs> of because to have an actual copy of the OED was, uh, yeah, that took up a significant amount of shelf space. Um, but, you know, somebody wanted to, to write 
a dictionary that traced the word origins uh, for every word that English uses and um, tracked how it changed over time. So you could look up the word weird and find out that, well, a weird was actually a noun 1,200 years ago. A weird was a word that meant a, a force of the supernatural that would shape your life, like fate, kind of. And so this is why Shakespeare has the weird sisters, right? They're, they're, they're the three fates. He's evoking the, the ancient Greek mythology of the fates. It's not because they're strange sisters, though they are, right? Uh, it's because um, of that word, the weird, the weird sisters. And that word, of course, it easily tracked for how that one has changed. And it's easy to understand why you might at first say, well, the weirds did it. The weirds changed the world. And you can say, well, that, look at that tree. It's all deformed. Maybe the weirds did it. And from there, it's a short jump to say that's a weird tree, right? And so it becomes an adjective then sometime later, still meaning something that is so odd that surely, surely it's supernatural. And then eventually it becomes sort of the progress of almost all words is to move from a more sacred usage, a more profound usage into the flippant and into the casual. Like that's sort of the only way they move. So we sort of always need new words to describe our experiences of the profound or of the supernatural perhaps because they always end up diminished. Think of the word awesome. 50 years ago, it was still reserved for something that inspired terror in you because it was so great. So amazing, but terrifyingly amazing. And and now we use it to describe gelato, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that that gelato is awesome. And we do it so casually, right? But of course, then the word loses a lot of its force when you can apply it, uh, you know, to something as trivial uh, as as your your visit to the shopping mall. And and so I think that's one of the things that drives home how precious each word really is. Mm -hmm. It's a living thing and it is active for a short time. And of course, there are words that just simply disappear out of use, sometimes for really strange reasons. Um, but the cultural habit of using a meme is a great example. Yes. Right. Uh, we all now use it in a very specific way to describe content that especially sort of amuses or speaks to the historical moment in some way, you know, but it was really a word that was to describe patterns, you know, um, being able to recognize patterns in the culture. And so you might say, well, this is this has become a pattern in our culture. It's, it's a meme, and it's derived from the word mimetic, you know, something that imitates something else. Um, and indeed, in our, in our English classes, we talk about how art is usually leaning heavily towards either a didactic purpose, a purpose to teach us and make us better, or a mimetic purpose, one that simply tries to hold up a mirror and say, this is, this is how you guys are, but it's not necessarily trying to teach. It's just saying, I want you to see it. So, you know, that's, that's another example of a word that it's almost delicate. They're almost fragile because we, we turn around and a word that we used just a few years ago, you know, has, has changed, maybe even radically. I'm always putting my head in my hands when my kids refer to me as a boomer, right? <laughs> like, for goodness sake, that's the baby boom right after World War II. Do you know when I was born? You know, but it doesn't matter because now it simply means anybody older than the millennial, right? It's just, it's a dismissive way to describe. So Gen X gets lumped in with the boomer somehow, right? But it's a good example of another word that, you know, it, it describes the fragility of a word. A baby boomer, even 10 years ago, if you read the word boomer, it meant specifically that generation. Mm -hmm. 
And already, you know, it's it's being used to describe somebody who's kind of old and, you know, not not hip anymore. And going beyond that, would you say that our like human desire for storytelling is something that will keep English uh, evolving along with technology and it will basically, it's something that won't ever go out of fashion, so to speak? How could it, right? Yeah, you've said it. You've said it uh, very well. There's no possible way. I mean, Mm -mm. it'll change how we do it, of course. But, you know, storytelling as a habit, uh, you know, think about the, the very first forms of it. Maybe even in our earliest human form when we didn't have much for language, you still wanted to hear from Thag how he killed that mammoth, you know. <laughs> and so he's going to act it out. He's going to jump around the fire and pick up his spear again and, you know, put on a little drama for us. Mm-hmm. Or etch it on the cave wall. Exactly. <laughs> Which you know, ultimately leads to writing, you know, it's symbolic communication. And so, but built into that storytelling is a whole host of things that you wanted transferred. You wanted the little ones to thrill in, wow, Uncle Thag killed a mammoth and he did it with that tool, you know. And so you're transferring not only the skills necessary to do it again, but the cultural values that celebrate somebody who can do that Mm -hmm. you know somebody who's been able to uh raid a neighboring village and come back with a whole lot of grain so we don't die they're gonna die but we don't die my my tribe is gonna make it by goodness right so there's a lot more going on inside what we call storytelling there's a there's there's a beating heart there of an entire culture and a value system it's beyond it and so how could it possibly ever go away unless human culture itself goes away it's a great answer. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay, well, uh, we'll wrap things up here. Uh, Brittany, do you have any last questions or comments? I really enjoyed this. This is my first time ever on a podcast, so it was very, <laughs> very fun. I'm looking forward to doing more. It was a delight speaking with both of you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for visiting being a part of this anytime happy to do it yes thank you so much justin and thank you Brittany, for coming in to co-host thanks to spencer rap our sound designer and engineer thank you and thank you to our executive producer and editor jake hofer thank you for listening to cyberology be sure to subscribe